Hello everybody, this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to TMR number 276 after a break since the beginning of the year, during which time I have been busy populating the schedule with interesting programs, well hopefully interesting programs, for the early part of 2022. So today I'm re-kickstarting my, is that a word? I don't know, well it'll do, re-kickstarting my fortnightly pattern here, or thereabouts, at least I hope so, my fortnightly pattern here, with a conversation with my guest today, Corey Zhu, who wrote a now quite famous essay called Coming Clean, my experience of the pandemic in South Africa and the case for a more inclusive conversation about COVID and vaccines. So more on that in just a moment. But before we do get going on that, just three things to say. Um, first, you may find as you listen to this, especially if you're a long time listener, that uh, I'm not quite as forthcoming with my views, uh, with my own views as I sometimes am. Uh, for example, I'm less persuaded, I think, than my guest by the safety of the current COVID-19 vaccines on offer. Uh, but that's fine, because the purpose of this interview was less to air my own views than it was to explore the experience and reasoning of my guest, um, whose opinions I do respect and whose essay I think is a must-read. So you know, please do read that if you if you haven't yet. Um, of course, that will be in the show notes. So, you know, I play devil's advocate far less in this particular conversation than I do usually. And that's deliberate. This is not a debate. It's an exploration of my guest's personal journey and process of reasoning over the months and months of the so-called pandemic. Um, secondly, this interview took place several days ago now, uh, so it doesn't reflect developments that have taken place in the last few days, uh, whatever those might be. Uh, so much happening now from day to day, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to keep up with it all. Um, anyway, so that's that. Uh, and number three, always say this, I have to say it, this is not medical advice in any way. Nothing said today is medical advice in any way. Neither of us is a medical doctor. So that having been said, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Um, I certainly did. So here is my recent conversation, well, fairly recent conversation with my guest today, Corey Zhu. Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am very pleased to be speaking with the software developer and entrepreneur Corey Zhu, whose name may actually be familiar to not a few of you, because at the beginning of January he published an essay, a very personal essay, on his blog, which went absolutely viral very very quickly indeed called this is the name of the piece coming clean my experience of the pandemic in south africa and the case for a more inclusive conversation about covid and vaccines which very clearly impressed a lot of people myself included because um obviously because of the subject matter but also because of its honesty and its balance and the fact that it's very well researched and as I, I said a, a very personal account of wrestling with so many of the questions to do with all things covid and all things covid vaccine which of course we're going to be talking about today so Corey welcome to TMR thank you very much indeed for agreeing to come on and speak with us yeah, thanks. I'm excited. It's, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's, it's an absolute delight to be speaking with you. And as you said to me, some of the emails with possible requests you've not even opened yet. So I feel very privileged <laughs> that you opened up mine. Um, well, no, um, I normally do a sort of um, introduction, short introduction for guests, a short bio, just to give a, a background to start with, you know. But um, with you looking at your about page on your website, I'm actually not quite sure what to say. I, mean, I don't know what software developer means. I don't know what entrepreneur means, but you write this. Um, these days, I mostly work on SAAS, Pegasus, the Django, SAS, boilerplate. I don't know what any of that means. So go on. What's that all about? Oh, man. Yeah. So the short version is that I, for the last five years, I've been on this kind of journey to replace my day job with my own products and my own businesses. Uh -huh. SAS Pegasus uh, is how it's pronounced. Okay. It's something that other software developers can use to build web applications quickly. So SaaS stands for software as a service, which is like any software that you use on the internet. So arguably like Gmail and Salesforce and Twitter. These are all SaaS things. And so I, I make products that other software developers can buy that helps them build their own products 
faster. And Django is a web programming framework. It's based on the Python language, which maybe some people will have heard of, that helps you write applications. Uh, I'm not sure how much closer that actually brings me to it, but it gives me an idea that at least that you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and as you say, there'll be some people out there. Who... I, I, I write code and sell it, basically. Cool. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, okay. And you are a US citizen now living in South Africa. So how did you end up living there? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, not that interesting a story. My, my wife and I, we worked for the same company. Uh, we were living together in Boston. Uh, we weren't married at the time, but we were both kind of interested in seeing the world more. We liked to travel. We liked to do work abroad. And we didn't want to leave our jobs. And, and so our company had offices in, in three places. One was in New Delhi, India, maybe a little too crowded and polluted for our tastes. One was in Dakar, Senegal. Uh, I don't speak French, so that was kind of a non-starter. And so we ended up in the third place, which was Cape Town, South Africa. And we came here with the idea that maybe we'd stay for a year or two, have a little adventure and go back to the US. But Cape Town is a wonderful place and South Africa is a really wonderful country. And so six, seven years later, we're still kind of, we've had two children. We're hunkered down at this ah, point. Um, so yeah. unusual path, but we're happy here. Excellent. And you say actually in the essay how that being in a place other than the US has given you, and particularly in South Africa, has given you a different slant on things, a different perspective. We'll come to that in a little bit. Um, so, of course, you've got this website. This is where your essay appeared, but you didn't create the website, did you, to just talk about COVID-19 and vaccines, did you? So what was that <laughs> website about? Oh, it's in part, it's just like a, like a normal web blog of like me talking about my life, but it's a lot of focus on, I guess, this whole like software developer, entrepreneur path and working for yourself and that type of thing. Mm. And then of course, now back in January the 4th, you suddenly write this rather different piece <laughs> called <laughs> Coming Clean. And it's interesting the way you started, because I get some sense of the slight trepidation um, yeah, venturing sure. into this subject here. Let me just, can I just quote the beginning here? So you... Um, <laughs> Quote, there's no easy way to say this, so I'm going to just come out and say it. I know that what I'm about to say may make some of you uncomfortable. It might make some of you angry, maybe even scared, but it's who I am. It's my truth. I'm, wow, okay, this is hard. L let me try again. I'm not vaccinated for COVID. Phew, that was hard. <laughs> Almost feels like a weight's been lifted off my shoulders. Are you still there? Okay, let's continue. Love the way you write that. Lo love that. Um, all right, then. Okay, w what did you do this then? What was suddenly changed and drop into this uncomfortable bit of writing? What did you do it? Oh, it's, it's uh, in a way, the whole essay is about why I wrote the essay. Uh, yeah. um, but at a high level, uh, I had been following this pandemic for two years at the beginning, I, I adopted the classic mainstream sort of like leftist view. Uh, you know, I was reading the coronavirus, why you must act now and flatten the curve and all those things. And I was yeah. supportive of the extreme, well, maybe not the extreme lockdowns we had in South Africa, but, but the lockdown and all that. And then at some point, uh, maybe sort of like as the vaccine started to roll out and as... Uh, as the efficacy of the vaccines especially started to wane yeah. and these other things. And, and simultaneously, um, the enthusiasm of public health authorities for mandating and restricting freedoms of people and, and all these things were happening and it, it didn't really make sense to me anymore. Um, mm -hmm. For a long time, my views and my beliefs were aligned with what was happening in the world and the best information that I had. And then all of a sudden they started diverging. And throughout this course of the second half of last year of 2021, they diverged more and more and more until I felt like, well, this is like, this is really strange uh, how far away I am from how far away I think the average person in my social circles is. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe if I speak up, then some of those people might might move a little closer to me, might change their beliefs a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. so that was that was kind of the motivation, I suppose. Yeah, and as you say, the actual essay itself will guide us through the, the thought processes. We'll come to that in just a moment. So I, I suppose in a way, it answers this rhetorical question that you've got here in the piece where you say, um, how could an MIT-educated, well-meaning, rational, hopefully, Massachusetts-born Democrat who works in public health still not have a COVID vaccine? Um, so I presume you're either reacting to what people have said or what you imagine imagine people might say of you and what's what's your background with public health yeah so i mean so my 
the company that I worked for, I still work a little bit with them now, but um, for the better part of 15 years has primarily been a, a company that works in public health and technology. And, and so we, we build applications for health workers, usually in rural communities, places like India, Sub-Saharan Africa, apps that they can use on their phone to help pregnant women help, you know, ironically help administer childhood immunizations. Um, and I led the technology team of that organization for many years. And, and I will say very, very clearly, I, I, I am in no way speaking for, for that no. for that organization. Uh, and everything I am saying is, you know, my own views. Yes. And let's also make it clear that you're not anti-vaccines in general, obviously, from what you just said. Yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah. I, my kid got a vaccine three days ago. And <laughs> okay. I got yep. a vaccine last month. So, Yeah. <laughs> Sure. And it's my position as well. I'm not all against all vaccines, but this, this situation is rather tricky and rather different. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your essay here, which is so intriguing, really. I mean, you start with saying that your seeds of doubt about what's been going on uh, started really in your formative years. And you credit your mum with sort of giving you a certain way of looking at the world a sort of critical way of looking at things, um, because I mean, your your mum is uh, r- remarkable in having a PhD from MIT in her field, one of the first women to have such. And go on, tell us a bit about your mum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, she was a computer uh, scientist at MIT in you know in the sixties and seventies, back when computers filled up entire rooms. And my mom and my dad, they, they met at MIT, and you know. It was a class of 100 people or something like that. And I, I'm pretty sure she was the only woman in the class. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of like the world that she was living in at that time. So she was incredibly gifted, incredibly smart, incredibly motivated. And yeah, I mean, she she definitely has played a, uh, a major role in influencing how, how I think about the world. Hmm. And specifically to this topic, I think like she's very much a naturalist, I would say. And so growing up in my household, for example, like we were the kids who were like, you know, supposed to eat dirt because it'll build up your immunity and she hated that you couldn't get non-antibacterial hand soap like she didn't she didn't want (laughs) antibacterial hand soap because she wanted those she didn't want us to live in a sterile environment where we weren't exposed to germs Mm. um so that was kind of like the positions that she would have she you know she was she was a big believer in the positive impact of the sun and exercise and vitamin d and and all that stuff Mm -hmm. and i think she has maybe a a more than healthy degree of skepticism for for modern medicine. Uh, mm. Certainly more skepticism than than I have. Uh, okay. But that is where sort of this this idea of like, oh, maybe maybe doctors get things wrong sometimes. Yeah. Maybe yeah. our public institutions like are overzealous to recommend something only to then realize that you know it had these unintended consequences. And so, yeah, like that planted the seed of doubts in in sort of like, yeah. well, maybe these vaccines. Who knows? Maybe I should you know, take a closer look. Yeah. So that's where that started, that sort of healthy scepticism. And oh, you've got a lovely story actually about going to the grocery store with, with your mum and um, having sort of scientific conversations as a child, as you're going along. <laughs> I can't quite imagine what that was like. What's a potato made of, mummy? I, mean, I, I don't know what you were saying. But, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. she was always trying to educate us. You know, it's spilled into future generations too. Like my brother, I remember my brother when he had kids, uh, every time something fell, he wouldn't say like, oh, that fell. He would say gravity because like, you know, he <laughs> wanted, he wanted them to like understand the world through, through science. Yes. Great. Okay. Um, but the, I mean, the main reason that you didn't initially get COVID-19 vaccinated in the early days of these things coming out, um, you say that was simply, um, beyond what you've just said, uh, is that you, you were physically in South Africa and that was, a different situation. I mean, primarily, it meant you didn't have initial access to these things, um, gave you time. So what did you observe? What did that time give you in terms of your decision making? Yeah. Um, yeah. So just in terms of timelines, like I think the vaccines started being rolled out in the US at the very end of 2020, maybe in December. And I think they came to South Africa maybe four or five months later. And then in South Africa, they started with the old and the health workers and they started working their way down to uh, to the younger people. So I'm, I'm 39 and it was, I think, maybe mid-July that I first became eligible to, to get the vaccine. So over that, you know, over that period, it seemed like by and large, the vaccines were working reasonably well, although there was there was some evidence that the that some of the protection was, was starting to wane. Hmm. I think also over that period... It's possible we already knew this, but but I became aware just sort of looking at the data and stuff just about the risk stratification of COVID. Yeah. 
which probably most people, especially your listeners, will probably know, but just sort of realizing that, you know, something like 60% of COVID deaths happen in, uh, you know, people over 65 or something like that. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I started to see that COVID didn't really present that much of a risk for myself and, and, and for my family, which, which was great. Like, I, I mean, I think, I think that was like a really comforting thought that, uh, you know, this disease was really scary and really deadly if you were old or frail or, you know, had some condition that, that made you more, more vulnerable. Um, but, but for young, healthy people and even sort of not that young, but, but maybe still okay, 39 year olds like me, it was, it was relatively, um, quite rare for, for people to be dying of it. And so mm. that gave me some comfort. And, you know, we live 10,000 miles away from my parents, from my wife's mom. And so, uh, we also don't have a lot of vulnerable people around us. And so I think relatively early on, maybe at some point while these vaccines were being rolled out um, in the developed world and in the US and Europe and places, um, our family kind of came to terms with like, you know, we're, we're not that personally worried about the impact of this disease on, on ourselves and on our own community. Because that's one of the arguments that's brought up, isn't it? That it's not so much that because this has changed over time, but in the early days, you know, it's not so much that you do this for yourself. You're doing it for the sake of other people. Quite a lot of guilt tripping around that one. But you say that during this time, you also became aware that the viral loads, quite similar, really, whether you've been COVID nineteen vaccinated or not. So, I mean, even that side of the argument began to crumble quite a long time ago now, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, it was August, I think, was when there were the two big sort of changes. And they both kind of happened around as Delta started to move from India to other places in the world. But yeah, the one was the Israel data where, you know, in Israel, they were able to vaccinate a huge percentage of their population with the Pfizer vaccine quite early on. And by August, we saw that that effectiveness against infection was starting to drop from you know, where it was originally thought to be something like 95% down into the 50, 60% range. And then the other thing that happened was the, um, I think it was the CDC study that looked at a Delta outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where essentially a lot of vaccinated people got Delta and they tested them and it looked like they had just as much viral loads, as you said. So they were going to be able to spread the disease as much. Uh, Possibly they were having shorter uh, duration of infection. So I think there was still some, you know, there was some protection. Uh, obviously, the, the 50, 60% was something. And then this, you know, you're, you're not contagious for as long if you've been vaccinated. So again, it was kind of like, well, yeah, they're, they're doing something. They're like, they're, they are beneficial um, from this spread of disease perspective. Um, but they weren't quite as beneficial as maybe they had been sold at. Yes. But to me, the, I mean, the bigger thing at that period was the realization that like this virus just wasn't going to go away. Mm-hmm. And several of the experts that I started following were, were basically saying this is going to become endemic. Zero COVID is a myth. Um, everyone is going to meet this virus at some point in their lives, probably more than once, probably many times. Mm-hmm. That really changed how I thought about the negative impact of spreading disease. Uh, like, obviously, it's still bad to spread disease. But when it's, you know, you might spread it to this person and kill them versus like, you might spread it to this person and they might die two weeks from now instead of four weeks from now or, or whatever it is. I think it really changes the way that you would think about how selfish and, and dangerous you are to yeah. society running around without that protection. Yes, it's very clear. You say that uh, it became obvious to you that all these measures really were about delaying the impact of this virus. It's not going to prevent it. Exactly. And you, you also mentioned that, you know, there's this business about the boosters, you know, so these vaccines need to be repeated and then, then then they're called boosters. And you said there's a kind of treadmill there going on and on and on. All this is really achieving is this delay and factored into all that is this unknown business about the safety of these things. Um, how safe did you think these were to start with? I, I wasn't sure, but, the, but they looked safe. I mean, they still look quite safe, I, I would say, overall. Um, I'm not so sure. There are these known, you know, there was the very, very rare blood clotting with, with the J&J and, mm. you know, myocarditis is the big concern with, with the mRNA vaccines now. Um, mm. and, and particularly for sort of people slightly younger than me, but, but younger males is where the biggest risk for that is. Yeah. And so they weren't likely to kill anybody. They weren't that likely to cause any, any long-term harm, but, but they could. Like there was, mm. there was a chance. And then the other thing that I point out in the essay, which 
to be honest, like, I think this goes back to sort of like my own biases, I would say, and the influence of my mom. The question that I asked myself was like, if the vaccines were something like smoking or something like asbestos or something like uh, something that has sort of a long term safety profile that uh, h- how would we know that? You know, like if, if, if the vaccine was one percent more likely to give me a heart attack sometime over the course of the next 30 years or um, made me one percent more likely to die of cancer sometime in the next 30 years. Like how, how would we know that and how would we figure that out? And this particular part of the essay and of my opinion, I, I think it's the it's the hardest one to defend because the common rebuttal that I've I've gotten from lots of people is like, well, yeah, this that's true, uh, but it's it's got to be even more true of COVID, which we also have no idea how catching COVID will impact uh, your long term health and your long term safety. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of just where this sort of like trust or gut feel that like this like naturalist uh, sort of like let the body deal with with the you know natural viruses versus versus this man-made technology that that we don't understand and it's not you know it's not going into our nose it's not coming to like the places where the body expects to find pathogens it's sort of like you know coming out of our arms and then moving our you know so it's mm-hmm. anyway so I, I rambled a lot there but i think it's um <laughs> the questions about long-term safety sat with me although mm. i will definitely admit you could ask the same questions about about the virus and so it's it's, it's kind of like a there's an equivalency there that um, who knows. (laughs) Yes. I mean, one of the ways in which I've sort of rationalized the situation to myself is that um, I've been persuaded that um, early treatment is effective. And so, you know, I think, well, I would rather go down that route than take what I consider to be an additional risk, you know, of, of these vaccines. So, you know, that's the way I've tended to think about this sort of thing. I mean, I mean, (sighs) I can't get out of my mind. You don't have to react to any of this, but I can't get out of my mind some of the the red flags that I've been picking up, that there are lots of anecdotal reports of bad reactions. And of course, they are anecdotal, but they're there. And uh, we do have higher, much higher than normal reporting of adverse reactions in these official repositories like the yellow card system here in the UK, the bears in the US. You know, and there are serious questions about vaccine trial integrity, We've had a British Medical Journal report about what Pfizer's been doing or one of its companies, one of its um, contract companies. Um, And, you know, these rather extraordinary things like um, the request for Pfizer's trial data to be delayed coming out for decades. You know, there there are lots of red flags for me about this sort of thing. Make me feel very uncomfortable about it. Yeah, um, I mean, I'll Um, I'll respond quickly. I mean, so on on the first thing, I I, I agree with you and I agree there's a lot of signal there that, that these vaccines are are more dangerous than most vaccines. I think the, the question that most people ask or suggest is how it should be framed is, are the vaccines more dangerous than the virus? Mm. And from that perspective, even if you believe that every VAERS report is factual, I guess then then you get into like the question of underreporting or overreporting. And anyway, I, I have a whole... <laughs> I, 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 this is a bit of a side chat, but at one point in my writing and research process, I was I was just trying to think like, if you wanted to try and say how many people died from the COVID vaccine, how would you do that? And the rabbit hole that you go into of like, first, okay, we'll start with VAERS, but then just because they died after the vaccine doesn't mean the vaccine caused it. So how do you know? And then no, how do you know sure. they were even telling the truth? But also like, how do you know that every vaccine death is caught and reported to VAERS? So it's, mm. it's just this impossible to answer question. Um, yes. But anyway, even even if you say that everything in VAERS is caused by the vaccine, if you compare it to COVID, it still looks quite a bit safer. Um, so that's that's the one thing. And then on, on the pharma stuff, I'm, I'm with you there that there is a large historical precedence as well as like specific information about how these vaccines have been rolled out and the transparency and everything else that should indicate that like we shouldn't trust exactly that like pharma is is 100% driven by like the best interests of, of society. Like, certainly they <laughs> no, have their own yeah. agenda and, you know, the corporations, they are legally obligated to to make money or, or you know, optimize their mm-hmm. hold their value. So, yeah. And as the police say, uh, some of them have form. I mean, just coming back to this sort of risk assessment thing, um, again, going back to how I've tried to rationalize this to myself, one of the things I did was to go to the Oxford COVID calculator. I'm not sure that's the actual name of it, but there's a facility. I'll, I'll put it in the, the links for people. And I went through that calculating you know, my age and my health status and all that. And it gave me a, a figure of my chance of dying about one in 7,000. 
Um, hmm. And then, of course, you can go to UK Yellow Card, and the data indicates a sort of correlation, obviously not causation, but correlation between death and, and vax, etc. You know, like one in 25,000. Well, okay, so that sort of suggests that maybe I should go that route. But, you know, none of this takes into consideration these other factors which I alluded to. So, I mean, I have been trying to make sure that my vitamin D status is good. I've been, for months and months, I've been taking a lot of vitamin D. So, and what does that do? And there are studies suggest that that decreases your chance of death by, well, 50%, you know, a hospitalization. And then, you know, what about early treatment other than that? So I've got, you know, various items of protocols in my cupboard. So what's that? Another 50%? I don't know. And then there's the irrigation of your, you know, the nasopharyngeal irrigation and the Omicron itself now is less of a threat. And so, you know, when you take all those into consideration, it seems that it shifts the balance very much to the, the other way, you know, so... Obviously, it's a very subjective thing, but you can get some sort of idea. Yeah, I think it's impossible to know. Mm. Mm. Uh, you just have to make a judgment, don't you? Yeah, and it would be in you know in a functional society, you would let people make their own judgments about these things. Um, mm. <laughs> and exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I, I've never faulted anybody for for choosing to get vaccinated. I think that's mm. a reasonable thing to do, and you know, I think we we could talk about kids and to mm. what extent that holds true for the younger you get. Indeed. Um, but the fact that, you know, a, a large portion of society is, is not comfortable with your assessment and with my assessment of the situation is, and, you know, seeks to, you know, remove our freedoms and, and take away our jobs and, and these other things as yes. a result of our choices. Yes. That's where I start yes. to get really frustrated. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's where things are getting very frightening indeed. Um, now, things really changed for you again, didn't they, when you actually contracted COVID-19? You say you may have got that through your toddler. <laughs> um, well, I think so. We're, we're expecting to come down with Omicron um, through our five-year-old here at any time now. Um, okay, yeah. Anyway, I think you said it wasn't a hugely bad experience for you in, in, in medical terms. Yeah. Of course, you, wonderfully, you, you got natural immunity from this. <laughs> um, but that whole question of... Now I've got natural immunity, but what's going on about that? That was a kind of rabbit hole experience for you, you say. What, what was that rabbit hole like? Yeah, well, again, I, I had heard that, and it, it was just intuitive that, you know, our immune systems protect us from future uh, contacts with the same virus. That's a very well-understood phenomenon. And, um, you know, for childhood illnesses and whatever else, like if you get if you get measles, then you don't get the measles vaccine because you already have immunity. And, um, and so I, I knew that, natural immunity would confer some protection. And, and I, I had also heard that with coronavirus, maybe it was different. Uh, maybe it wasn't as long lasting. Maybe it mutated more and, and these other things. And so so now all of a sudden I was very interested in the answer to this question because um, because it affected me. You know, the, the strangest thing that I found was how widely distributed the evidence base was. And mm. to some extent, like, I would say the overwhelming ma majority of the evidence that I saw indicated that natural immunity was at least as good as, as vaccination and appeared to be more durable. Um, there was a handful of papers that claimed the opposite. Um, a lot of them were based on lab data where they would vaccinate someone and then they would measure the amount of antibodies in their blood some period of time later. And then they would do the same thing for someone who had been infected. And they'd say, well, the vaccinated person has more antibodies, so therefore they're more protected, which that didn't strike me as like, the right way to be doing that comparison <laughs> yeah. and and rather look at populations and, and how they respond but but then the cdc did even did even publish a study that claimed that infected people were five times more likely to be hospitalized uh, from a second case than people who had been vaccinated and yeah. and so it was weird it, it was just it was weird that like you know the evidence base was so fractured and and that like for me to answer this question i, I couldn't just like you know i couldn't just google it and find the answer like i had to like go read these these research papers that, that I'm, you know, hardly equipped to really wrap head around and, and, and try and, you know, quote, do my own research, which, which I know is, is a meme, but I mean, it's a good meme. We, we need to do that. <laughs> Indeed. But it is, Although, it is you also... say, it's very difficult because we don't necessarily have the tools to do it, do we? We each have our own areas of specialism and they don't necessarily coincide with what we're trying to read. Yeah. Well, and we all have, we have our biases, which is absolutely, which also makes things hard. Yes, it does. But I think, um, the people who are completely like, bought into the, I've heard it referred to as the thesis position, which is, which is just like, you know, the portrayal of COVID and, and vaccination in the mainstream media. Like they, mm. they will mock someone like me saying, oh, I did my re own research because their position would be, I should just listen to the CDC because the CDC <laughs> knows way more than me. Yes, that's and right. I get that 
they might feel that way. Mm -hmm. And, and I still did the research and now I'm confused and now (laughs) I'm thinking maybe the CDC is like, you know, I I don't know why that they publish the things that they do. Um, but it, it does seem like a lot of their publications are tied to perhaps like their policy goals as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, it's one thing, isn't it, to say, well, we know more than you do about this particular subject. But they're also saying, so therefore trust us. But then you have to assume that they are necessarily trustworthy, and that's a bit of a moot point. Uh, so, yeah, we do need to do our own research insofar as we can. Yeah. Um, as you say, to try to put our confirmation bias on one side, which is very difficult. Well, and but it's very interesting that um, you mentioned about the CDC. They've, According to a number of people... Um, John Campbell, uh, Moby and Syed, Chris Martinson, um, these people have been listening to recently. They're reporting on this CDC, um, what is it, a, a Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report here from California, New York, May to November 2021. Yeah. And it seems to be showing, well, was- yeah, actually, natural immunity is, is, is better. <laughs> so um, things seem to have shifted there. I know, yeah, that yeah. came out after, uh, after I published yes. the essay, but I was, I was really mm-hmm. thrilled to to see that coming out of the CDC. It's, um, yes. it, it gives so much more credibility to the position that I already felt with, with a pretty high degree of certainty was true. But now I can, now I can also sort of mm. point to authority and say, look, even they agree. Um, so. Yes. So I shall with great delight and put that in the show notes, including the links <laughs> to those videos, which explain it. Uh, it's not very easy to read, I have to say. Um, yeah. So the really big thing, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, is really this turning of public opinion leading to this othering process, which I think is perhaps the most disturbing aspect of all of this. So people who don't have the right opinion about these things are not following the narrative as they're supposed to, increasingly being pushed into this box of they're the other people, they're the deplorables, and we can all find ourselves in in that box if we're not very, very careful always to say and think the right things. It's very, very disturbing. So you were quite shocked, you say, that this became so politicized to the extent that you were told by others that maybe some friends back in the US and the like would not even want to see you. Um, Yeah, I mean, honestly, I was floored. hmm. I I wasn't even, I wasn't mad at them. I mean, my my first reaction was just like really shock because Hmm. I remember I was planning on going to a friend's wedding, which was, was kind of how it came up. So I had... I was looking at booking tickets and going back to the U.S. and and doing a big trip. I mean, it's it's a mission to get out there, so it's you know <laughs> I wanted to go and see my family, see my friends, go to the wedding. And I was chatting with some people about it, and someone said, you know, I forget exactly how it came up, but but I asked at some point, like, oh, do you think it would be a problem that I'm that I'm I haven't gotten vaccinated yet? And this friend that I was talking to said basically like, well, I would be personally fine with that. But I I suspect that like a lot of people in our community might not be. And keep in mind, this was this was less than a month after after I was eligible for the vaccine. So Mm. it would have been almost like I would have had to sort of like line up the day it was available to get the, you know, whatever the three weeks spacing in and and be fully vaccinated at that time. So just it was just really strange. And it was it was so foreign to me, like, um, that people in the US saw the unvaccinated as such a like a risk, I guess. Like I think they were, I think they were coming from like a genuine place of fear that because I was now, you know, whatever it is, 50% more likely to have COVID, um, that I was now somehow dangerous to them. But it it was, it was just so strange because I mean, first of all, nobody here was, at least not in my circles was, was thinking like that, but also like these people had been running around and seeing each other for a year and a half. Like everyone was unvaccinated for all of (laughs) you know, 2020, basically. Right. And mm. a lot of us hunkered down for, for long periods of time, but, you know, eventually emerged and, and, and tried to, like, get back to, like, some degree of normalcy. And then all of a sudden, now that this thing made the whole world safer, all of a sudden, these people who were the same people, you know, same unvaccinated status that you had been spending time with for the past 18 months are now, like, you know, scary to hang out with. Like, it was, it was very strange. <laughs> right. And it felt yeah. like there had to be some sort of political spin behind it because mm. yeah it, it just because it was so different from what i was mm. what i was experiencing yeah you said that somebody said to you i don't know what it is you said exactly but they responded is whoa so you're a conspiracy theorist yeah um and you had a, a dinner joke experience i can't remember what that was some sort of dinner joke which kind of shocked you, you yeah no it, it didn't even make sense to me which was the funny thing like oh. 
mm-hmm. we were having dinner with some friends and, and he was just saying like, oh yeah, blah, 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 did something, you know, like I wasn't vaccinated. So like, blah, blah, blah. And then I, you know, I was so surprised because I, I met so few Americans that hadn't been vaccinated at that time. So I was like, well, you're not vaccinated and then he and then he was like oh no no no, sorry like that was like deadpan humor like obviously i'm vaccinated like (laughs) (laughs) all right right okay Um, i get you yeah yeah okay ironic yeah i guess so yeah it it was you know it's one of those things where if you're if you're in an in group Mm. and there's an other group then you can make just sort of like you know I, i don't think they're i don't think any of these people intended to like say anything hateful or or none none of these things were like a big deal but it was like sure it was like oh this is a group of people that all now feel safe sort of saying like anybody who's not vaccinated is like a conspiracy theorist and like you know bad for society or you know doesn't care about uh yes and and that that was just like interesting that it was so obviously acceptable to say something like that and and like it would never even cross their mind that I might not be vaccinated. Like, mm. cause obviously if you, if you knew I was not vaccinated, you wouldn't crack jokes like that. Mm. Um, so, was, uh, yes, I see. Yes. You say in the piece that, uh, this is quoting you vaccine status had become a safe place to mock and shame our fellow people. <laughs> I've been very lucky actually. Um, nobody has said that they don't want to see me. I did actually fear that at one point. Um, and I was certainly ready for things like, you know, if anybody was going to say to me, well, you know, before you visit us, please take a lateral flow test and that sort of thing. I, I was readying myself by saying, well, yeah, but, you know, you're vaccinated. You could pass it to me. Will you please also take a lateral flow test? Yeah, um, sure. You know, yeah. So, I, but I've, I've been um, quite lucky in that respect. Um, I did once, there were some people I know who did in conversation very casually talk about the fact that they couldn't understand how this person was an anti-vaxxer. And I questioned them, and it wasn't that they were an anti-vaxxer. They were just questioning a COVID-19 vaccine. So that was interesting in itself. But, you know, their attitude was, oh, you know, this person's such an intelligent person. You know, we don't understand it. And I thought, what? You know, isn't it more intelligent at least to ask questions? Anyway, yeah, interesting. But I've been lucky and I've not had any well, that's, real that's challenges along those lines. Well, well, you know, I think... I think that's a pretty common experience. You know, the wedding, I ultimately, I wasn't able to attend the wedding. And the decision was made easy because they decided not to allow unvaccinated people. Um, okay. But I mean, you know, I haven't, I haven't been to America in, in more than two years now, so I don't know how it would have gone. But, but in general, I, I, I feel similarly. Like, even when the essay came out um, and there was a lot of questioning about, you know, how are people going to interpret your words? And is, are you, you know, helping promote anti-vax conspiracy agendas and whatever else? But, but by and large, it was, it was a very reasonable response. And I, you know, it's interesting because if you, if you read the New York times every day, you would, you would think that like everybody is, they've got like a hundred COVID tests and they take one every morning and then like they go and they take another one at lunch when they're like going to have a coffee with somebody. And like, like you would think that like people are operating in this, like, crazy world but actually i think that and this might just be like the optimist in me talking but like i I think that the majority of people don't really care and there's this small group (laughs) of of like very very vocal people similar to to a lot of a lot of issues where the most extreme positions get amplified and used to kind of turn people against each other and, and social media is complicit in this but then I think most of the world is hopefully pretty reasonable. And, and that's one of the real things I, w- I was hoping to do with, with the essay is like hmm. toe this hopefully centrist line of like, you know, uh, so I don't know. We'll see. No, well, that's, that's really interesting, actually, and very positive because I certainly want to share your optimism. And I think I do cautiously but as you alluded to there there are people working quite hard to sow discord among us um and i just wanted to share this because i was so shocked by sorry (laughs) i'm gonna do a lot of talking here um just this piece that came out very recently in uh, the mirror here in in the uk so the 25th of january a lot of people cross about this i'm cross about this but you know this sort of opinion piece which seems to me is trying to stir up um hatred, really. Um, it's, it's called As COVID Restrictions Ease, which they are doing here in the UK at the moment. Um, it's time to get tough on anti-vaxxers. And she says, uh, get jabbed or else. Um, Boris is trying to please his right-wingers. Um, it's difficult to, to persuade. The, the militant, rabid anti-vaxxers will never be persuaded, so they need to be forced. Yeah. And she's she likes what uh, 
Emmanuel Macron is doing. Um, French President Emmanuel Macron's strategy is to pee off the unvaccinated by making daily life more and more difficult for them. Très bien, but not far enough. The unvaccinated must become social pariahs. Now that's that's horrible talk. Yeah, that is. You know that is that is really scary. That yes. you know she and her editor think that that is just like a totally safe piece of content to publish. Like I, I do find that quite mm. disturbing, and hopefully. I'm right that like that is not how 90 something percent of people in the UK actually feel. And one reason why someone would publish something like that is because their whole business model operates on generating views and you're going to generate (laughs) views when you amplify the emotional receptors of both the people who love what you're saying and the people that hate what you're saying. Yes, sure. You know, it's as much a problem of, you know, social media algorithms mm-hmm. and the economic incentives of the yes. news industry and all these things. Of course, uh, of course. Yeah, but it's dangerous to do it, isn't it? I mean, it's a socially dangerous thing to do. I, I hope so. Like, I, I mean, but the fact that Macron has said some of the things he said, that, that Trudeau mm-hmm. has said some of the things that, mm-hmm. that he said, it's, it's really wild. Like, I, I can't remember any time in history where this kind of rhetoric was used against like people in one's own country <laughs> you know it's like it's like you, you try to imagine like well that's where the parallels of course are like, drawn with places like nazi germany yeah you know and i, and I know in many ways you're, you're not supposed to do that but i think actually that's dangerous not to point in in that direction because of the possibilities that are there uh, which is not to say it's identical of course it's not identical but there are dangers in in that direction yeah. Um, well, I, I hope that with the internet and the global connectedness and everything else, I, I would hope that to pull off something like Nazi Germany pulled off mm. would be very difficult in in today's society. And I I, th- I think again, maybe maybe I'm feeling optimistic right now. And like the the truckers are like driving through Canada right now, and like everybody's cheering them on, and it's it's getting me like really, you know, Elon Musk was tweeting it about it earlier today, and it's like yes, yes. I, I guess like I'm feeling hopeful, just and also just with the direction the science is heading on every factor, yes. just you know, continuing boosters not necessarily being a good idea, and you know, Omicron having basically mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So. Absolutely, Omicron, because that's the next thing you say, isn't it? And then came <laughs> Omicron, uh, and it does obviously it does change things. And an interesting question as to how Omicron came to be, which is, we won't go into that, but people are asking questions about that. Which is, yeah. was it a white hat thing? Yeah, who knows? Um, anyway, yeah. um, so, so you say this was quite a weird experience for you in the sense that you were kind of behind the times before, but now you're Omicron appearing in South Africa. You're kind of experiencing the future, <laughs> weirdly. Yeah. So that's given you. Has that the phenomenon of Omicron given you hope then that we can all learn to live with this thing now? If it can give us immunity and, and it can just become endemic and we're all right. Well, I hope so. Because um, hmm. if you just looked at the science, like if you just looked at, you know, how many people are going to die of this thing from now moving forwards, um, you know, it looks like we're past the worst of it. Um, you know, it's, it's COVID's going to kill people for the rest of our lives, like forever, basically, you know, it's going to, it's influenza continues to kill people. Um, but based on the evidence I've seen, it seems like, you know, Omicron is milder. It spreads more, it's creating natural immunity and, you know, potentially more than half the population, uh, many of whom are vaccinated. It's, you know, vaccine efficacy is not very good and even boosters aren't great after a few months like you know israel's going on dose four now and so it does feel like it's causing the current policies to become even further decoupled with public health with the practicalities of the situation and so i'm hopeful that as long as that remains true then you know i I recognize that like governments are slow to adjust and public opinion is slow to move but like Mm. Once enough people realize that like things have changed, hopefully you would you would start to see these other things following, lagging behind at, at some speed. So uh, that's the optimistic case for it. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you're right. We still have an Austria and an Italy and a Greece and a Germany and a Canada and Australia and yeah. lagging far behind. Uh, I very much hope you're right. But I mean, supposing this does, this narrative unravels and we find that, uh, okay, we go back to normal. Well, we're never going to go quite back to normal. But you say in the essay that in some respects, you don't want things to go back to normal because normal wasn't 
wasn't all that great in the sense that there were truths that have been revealed by this so-called pandemic from which we should learn. If we go back to completely normal, then we won't have learned anything. And there are some lessons to learn from this. And I think that's very, very important. Hmm. Um, well, I, I do feel more hopeful now. But there were, there were times when I felt like we were really getting close to some kind of brink. For a long time, I've said I'm not scared of the virus anywhere near so much as I'm scared of what my government might do. Yeah. Um, thank heavens for Omicron. But I will never forget that um, Boris Johnson echoed what Ursula von der Leyen said in the EU, you know, that we must have a conversation about mandatory vaccination across Europe. And there's Boris echoing that. And I thought, well, where are we going next with this? Yeah. You know, so I'm not so scared about having that injection in my arm. I don't want it for all kinds of reasons I'm talking about, but just the very idea that I should have no choice in the matter for this one and the next, the next, yeah. whatever they want to do to my body thereafter is really, really scary. That wasn't like something that would just came out of the blue. There's a certain way of looking at the world and, and the structures that are there that this pandemic brought out, I think. So I, th I agree with you. We must learn from this very seriously. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, it's a question of what returning to normal means, I guess. Like, you know, if, hmm. if, if somehow society could just say, okay, guys, we kind of botched this one. Like, sorry about our bad. You know, we, uh, we got a little excited about the vaccines. We got a little bit excited about the lockdowns and, uh, we let things get a little out of control. We're going to, we're going to wind it back, you know, like, and if they did that and it would be hard to do with sort of grace and dignity, um, yeah, there's got to be face saving, hasn't there? There's got to be that. Yeah. We've got to allow if, that. If they did that and they, Sorry? We've got to allow that to some extent, haven't we? To allow people to save face. Yeah. If we don't allow that, then there's going to be just doubling down all the time. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean letting them play all the games and just getting away with it and so that we end up with the situation is exactly as it was, all the power structures in place exactly as they were without critique. Well, I think we it's... We have to learn from this. I mean, you... you well, go on. I think it's going to be impossible for them. I think the degree to which trust in public health and public health institutions will be eroded is going to be a real difficult thing for them to recover from. Yes. Even if they do, you know, they, they do take the sort of, oh, we just will delay a bit and then the science changed and, you know, there's a new variant and, oh, now all of a sudden the CDC mm. says natural immunity is good so we can stop forcing people who've been infected to get the shot. And so, like, I, I agree that, like, something should be different. Like, we, we should learn from this. And I, I think that we have learned from this. I think a lot of us mm. have, have learned that like these often like noble lies and, and some of the, the inconsistent messaging and the mm. bad communications that have been coming out of our public health authorities are really problematic. And I, I think, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's often, it's often said, isn't it, that the great tragedy of this is the erosion of public trust in various institutions. I'm not so sure about that. I think maybe that is the big learn, you know. Um, <laughs> perhaps we should actually say, yeah, well, we should not have trusted Big Pharma so much. And yeah, we should not trust two globalist philanthropy so much. And yeah, the media has been complicit and governments do tilt towards authoritarianism. We've trusted too much to our so-called liberal democracies thinking they're okay well, no, they, they have within them these tendencies to go in a certain direction under pressure. Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of erosion, as it's called, erosion of, well, it depends, even that language is loaded, isn't it? So something eroded is something bad. But, <laughs> but there's some um, dawning of a realisation that we, we don't live yeah. in this benign world. No, I, yeah, I, I, mm. that makes sense. That will be an important learning from, uh, for a lot of people. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Anyway, so at the end of this, then you sound, I think, more hopeful, actually, than you do at the end of the essay. Of course, you wrote that um, not quite a month ago, but or maybe you wrote it a month ago. Um, so, <laughs> well, I, yeah, I will say the timing yeah. of the essay, I was less hopeful than I am now. It's funny, like I, I go through these highs and lows of optimism and pessimism, kind of depending on whatever the latest thing that's happened to have and, and the latest in public opinion. So it's, yeah, it's really, sure. um, well, yes. and the, you know, Indeed. the fact that science is one side of the arm, but then policy is to a large extent, just like completely out of unpredictable, you know, like I think policy is not being set by science anymore. Policy is being set by public opinion, which is being set by this complicated media machine and, and whatever. And so, mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if, if I sound... And then it's being claimed that it's because of the science. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. yeah, 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 exactly. You know, only mm. certain science gets to front row seat on, in front of everybody's on their TV screens, <laughs> and, then, and then all this other science just gets buried somewhere else. So, mm -hmm. so 
But anyway, so if I sound more hopeful now, it's it's because I, I am more hopeful yeah, than yeah. I was. When I wrote the essay, I was really worried. And, and like I said at the beginning, like a lot of the motivation to write the essay was just like, well, look, if I can convince mm. five people in the world to like change their position on vaccine mandates, this is an important time to do that because mm. it felt like we were standing on a knife's edge and like yes. we could go deep into this, you know, more mandates, more boosters, more uh, authoritarian control over freedom of movement and blah, 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 blah. Or mm. we could go towards like, oh, this this actually like we can kind of just get back to normal. Mm. Like we could just do that now and things would be mostly OK. You know, some, some people would still die. People die every day. Uh, but um, and so I, I felt like if my essay could just move us just like a tiny bit towards what I viewed as the as the happier place, then like that would be worth it. And it, it felt urgent at that exact moment. Yes. Well, I'm glad you wrote it. I think it was a very important thing to write. And I'm glad I caught you on an optimistic day because <laughs> um, I'm feeling more optimistic today as well. Yeah, you can thank the trekkers. So, yeah, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, but I, I think as we've, we've been saying, I'm, certainly I'm calling for a cautious optimism. Um, because yeah. although I don't feel the the brink, <laughs> don't feel the sharpness of that edge, you know, I'm aware that it's there. Um, and so although we can feel more optimistic, which is a good thing, um, nevertheless, we must learn these lessons, remember these things, and I think continue to speak in such terms, um, because there's a lot of revisionism. A lot of people are saying this at the moment, people who previously were all about oh we've got a lockdown and blah 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 and now saying oh well i never really thought that and I, you know but uh so yeah. um well oddly enough like you know i've i was pro lockdown in the beginning yeah. like I, I didn't i don't come from the classical mm. uh i haven't been on team great barrington declaration or, or whatever you want to call it like this this whole time I, I i didn't even learn what the great barrington declaration was until a few months ago <laughs> but yeah I, I think at this point we know a lot more if i knew what i knew now i would also have said these lockdowns don't seem like the maybe the best idea but right. I, I could give the world more of the benefit of the doubt when we were all just freaking out and not really sure what we were working with yes and yes. two years later it's inexcusable absolutely yeah I mean, I've, as i said to you in the the, 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 the email i sent to you initially i, I feel you know a similar sort of trajectory although the timeline's a bit different yeah. Um, initially I just accepted this as what it was and I was quite scared about it at the beginning and washing my hands all the time and washing the doorknob and all that sort of thing and <laughs> and thought yeah it's just going to be a few weeks and this will all sort of pan out and thereafter of course as we know what happened my views gradually changed on it so yeah I've not been against all the mainstream reaction to this right from the word go by any means um Anyway, so thank you very much for this conversation. Uh, really interesting, fascinating essay that you wrote there. I do encourage people to read the real thing <laughs> rather than just our conversation here. Um, so, yes, uh, your your website, have I written that down? I haven't actually. Is it corizu.com? Is it that straightforward? That's right, yeah. Yep. There you go. That's easy to remember, isn't it? C-O-R-Y-Z-U-E. Yes, <laughs> yes. C-O-R-Y-Z-U-E.com obviously put that in the show notes so the article itself is coming clean my experience of the pandemic in south africa and the case for a more inclusive conversation about covid and vaccines and i very much hope that's what we've had today a more inclusive conversation about all this and so thank you ever so much uh, uh cory for coming on I've, I've very much enjoyed the conversation yeah me too this this was a lot of fun thanks for having me on Show notes for this program can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakoff, attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, Corey Zhu, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. <laughs>